Isaiah's life and ministry spanned um, the reigns of four kings of Judah, of the southern kingdom. Uh, that included King Uzziah, King Jotham, Ahaz, who was a terrible king, and Hezekiah, who actually was one of the better kings of, um, of Judah. And uh, Isaiah's ministry began probably sometime around 740 B.C., and which was the year that King Uzziah died, and it can, would have continued for somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 to 50 years, probably just a little beyond um, Hezekiah's reign, because Hezekiah didn't have him killed. You remember Isaiah was martyred? He, it, the story goes that he was put in a log and sawed in half, mostly because they just didn't like what he had to say. The king was in charge at the time. It's like, I don't like what you're saying, Isaiah. Take him out. And... So tradition has it that's how he died, that he was martyred. Um, he had a tough ministry, right? I mean, he was in his call in Isaiah 6. God told him, listen, you're going to go and you're going to tell people things that they don't want to hear. That's a loose paraphrase, right? But essentially, it's you're going to go and you're going to preach things that people don't want to hear. And you're going to have resistance because of that um, and strife in your life. Do, does that sound familiar to any of you for us at all? Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you, right? They're not going to want to hear what you have to say either, the world at large. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't continue to share and continue to speak truth, to speak life. Um, the oracles we're reading speak of the events, the ones that we're going to be in tonight. They speak of the events that happened during the reign of Hezekiah. Um, now, Hezekiah was, was the righteous son of Ahaz, and like I said, he was actually a pretty good king. He made a lot of reforms with Isaiah's help, um, but during this time frame was when Isaiah had the most influence in his ministry. Uh, he, was, he was actually listened to by Hezekiah, by and large. There were a few things that Hezekiah, Hezekiah failed at, but for the most part, Hezekiah listened to the word of God that came to him through Isaiah. Uh, he was Hezekiah's chief advisor, and some of the things that they accomplished together is the suppression of idolatry. Hezekiah um, reconstituted the temple service, had a lot of the idols that were in the temple and in the temple court area taken out and destroyed, um, the, the poles up in the high places where uh, various things happened, that those were tore down and destroyed. So there was a lot of good reforms both in the church in their religious practice, but also in the state under his reign. And his, his reign, that is Hezekiah's reign, lasted for 29 years. So a pretty good chunk of time. Um, a lot of the prophets that came before Isaiah came from real humble uh, circumstances. They weren't, um, they weren't necessarily well-known. They, uh, they, they weren't people of means. Isaiah actually was known as the prince of prophets, and a lot of that is because he probably actually was a prince. He probably was related in some manner to Hezekiah, some kind of a shirt-tail cousin. Um, so he had spent time in the court, and that's how he had access in and out of the court so easily. Well, probably one of the reasons he wasn't killed sooner, because Ahaz despised everything that, Hezekiah, or that Isaiah had to tell him as well. Um, so he was actually very likely born into a prominent family, and involved himself in political and religious matters. The Lord involved him in these things as well, right? So during this time frame, or during Hezekiah's reign, uh, Judah, the nation, southern tribes, were urged to join in the uprising against Assyria. Now, this happened around seven, this happened again, actually. It happened before 722 when um, when the northern tribes were wiped out and Assyria took over. But also again in 713, uh, they were, Judah was urged to join in the, basically rebellion against Assyria, to be rebellious against Assyria, to discount the deal that Ahaz had made with Assyria and, um, and passed on to Hezekiah. Um, but Isaiah actually told him, no, you actually should honor the deal that was made with Assyria. Trust God, honor this deal, and the Lord's going to carry you through. Um, so Isaiah counseled Hezekiah against this, assuring him that God would let them know that it would be obvious when Assyria should fall. Um, Isaiah also reminded Hezekiah that Assyria's rise to power was actually 
at the Lord's bidding. It was his hand that, that brought them to, the, to this place of prominence. This happens back in Isaiah 19. We kind of rushed through that section, or Pastor Rob did when he, he did from chapter 13 to 19 all at once. But there's a little chunk in the middle of nine, chapter 19. Um, it just makes the, the simple statement that Assyria is, is being raised up by the hand of the Lord. Uh, so Isaiah would have reminded Hezekiah of this, and then also warning him that to go against Assyria would actually compound Judah's sin uh, and increase their trouble. So at this point in time, Hezekiah actually listened to Isaiah, and Judah was actually spared in 713. Now, in 705 BC, Hezekiah actually disregarded Isaiah's advice. Um, after the king of Assyria, King Sargon II, died, um, Judah actually joined into an alliance with Egypt, which God had expressly forbidden. Why do you think that would be? I mean, you think back to the Exodus, and what were they always grumbling and complaining about? Why did you drag us out of Egypt out into this desert to die, right? They were always trying to return to Egypt, this, this idea of going back to this place where, where they were slaves, and yet they felt secure. And I bring that up because we tend to do the same thing. We want to return to Egypt. Egypt in the Bible oftentimes represents sin. And we so often return to a place of comfort, a place that we know oftentimes is a place of sin in our own lives because it's a, it's a, it's a place where we're comfortable in so many ways, right? It's the life we know oftentimes. Um, but God tells him, listen, don't make a deal with Egypt. Don't go to them for help. Uh, trust me is, is the... the urging that he's always bringing to them. Um, but anyway, Sennacherib is the new king, Sargon's successor. And because he heard about this alliance, he actually overruns Judah and he, in 701. He actually takes over all of the fortified cities of the southern kingdom of Judah and ultimately is coming up against Jerusalem. Um, and under this pressure... Hezekiah actually makes, uh, he's persuaded to make peace and to salvage what's left of his kingdom, to preserve the little bit of, of kingdom that's still there. So he sends a letter to Sennacherib uh, conceding defeat and subsequently pays this huge tribute that's demanded. It's like 300, uh, whatever the, the weight of silver was, and, three, and 30 tons of gold. Um, so a huge ransom or tribute that he's demanding uh, and you can read all about that at your leisure, not tonight, but in 2 Kings 18 and 19, and also in 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 32. It lays out the story, and, and in 2 second, second Chronicles, it actually talks about the tribute that he sends off to uh, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. Um, again, there's this constant call through the prophets, and through Isaiah in this case, to trust God and not worldly powers. Right. So about 12 years later, about 12 years after this, Isaiah gives actually just the opposite counsel when Sennacherib attacked Jerusalem uh, 12 years after the 713 date. So in 701, Isaiah is counseling Hezekiah to resist. In fact, he's urging him to resist. Isaiah had been told by God and could see the writing on the wall, essentially. He could see that the Assyrian king's arrogance um, was a sign of the appendix of impending downfall of his doom that was coming. Um, and in about seven more chapters, we'll read about that doom of Assyria. Essentially, the and I've mentioned it multiple times as we've been going along, the angel of the Lord who goes and wipes out 185,000 um, of the Assyrian troops in one night. And what was the response to that? Well, he had also, back in, I think it was in Second Chronicles, the Lord had predicted that... Uh, the king would essentially tuck tail, go home, and he would put him to the sword in his own home um, or in his hometown, which is exactly what happened. When the Lord came and, and the angel of the Lord destroyed these armies, destroyed the 185,000 soldiers, Sennacherib tuck tail, goes home, and he's worshiping in the house of, and I can't remember the name of the god where he's worshiping, but a false idol, right? And two of his sons come in and kill him. Uh, so there goes the way of Sennacherib, exactly like the way, exactly as the Lord predicted. Uh, and his home was in Nineveh. Um, you know, we look back and it's, it's 
easy a lot of times looking back on events like this and we cluck our tongues and it's like, you know, poor Hezekiah, why didn't he trust God? Well, you've got to consider the immense pressure that he was under in this scenario. Um, For him to fail, for Assyria to actually win and take over, didn't mean just death for Hezekiah. It would would mean a a terrible, horrible, slow, painful, torturous death. And usually that would be preceded by the slow, painful, torturous death of everyone in his family. And he would be forced to witness that. And then he himself would experience the same thing. The, The Assyrians were brutal. The Babylonians also, if you recall at the end of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, we read about, um, I think it's Jehoiachin, I can't remember for sure which king, but it doesn't really matter. The Babylonians killed his sons in front of him and then gouged his eyeballs out so that the last thing he saw was the death of his sons. Um, And the Assyrians actually, they kind of made the Babylonians look like pretty nice guys a lot of times. Um, So this is the kind of thing they did. When When there was a turnover in power, So the point being, Hezekiah's got immense pressure on him in these decisions. What's he going to do? I mean, here's this extremely powerful army to the north or from the north that's on his doorstep. Um, There there is uh, another superpower to the south, Egypt, who for a price is willing to come to their aid, right? Or is he just going to trust God? And he goes back and forth a little bit. Ultimately, he does end up trusting God. Um, And we read most of that in in chapters 36 through 39 in Isaiah. So let's jump into the word tonight. Uh, Chapter 30 of Isaiah. Verse 1 says, Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, but that they may add sin to sin. Who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt? Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For uh, for though his officials are at zone and his envoys reach Hanes, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. Uh, this is the third woe in our recent chapters. In chapter 28, it was woe to Ephraim. It says awe in the ESV, but it's the same word. It means woe, which means you're under God's curse. Listen. Um, woe to these rebellious children or woe to these stubborn children. In chapter 28, it was woe to Ephraim, referring to the northern kingdoms of Israel, followed by woe to Ariel or Jerusalem in chapter 29 that we went through last week. And now it's woe to these rebellious children. Um, The word that the ESV, which I'm using here, translates uh, translates as stubborn. Um, In the NIV, it's translated as obstinate. it's the word sarar in Hebrew, and I'm no Hebrew scholar, but what the word is translated rebellious in the majority of English um, Bibles, and that's probably the best, well, it would seem that's the best translation based on the number of, of uh, Hebrew or uh, English versions that translate it as um, rebellious. Now, stubborn is a perfectly fine word as well, and obliterate, and it carries, or uh, obstinate, carries the same idea, right? Um, I want you to look at a passage that uses the same word and, and it's speaking about rebellious children. So it's in Deuteronomy 21, chapter 21, verse 18 of Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible, quite a ways back to the left from where we're at in Isaiah. So Deuteronomy 18, or 21, verse 18. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious, so they use both stubborn and rebellious, here in the translation of the same word. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, he will not listen to them. Then this father and his mother 
shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of, the, of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. The gate is where, was basically the courtroom of the day, right? This is where important decisions were made. Verse 20, and they shall say to the elders of the city, this is our son, or this, our son, is, is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the, many of the, all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. So they're stoning this son simply for being rebellious and stubborn, right? So it's, it's a pretty serious offense, apparently. Um, he's also a glutton and a drunkard, which doesn't just happen immediately, right? I mean, it takes practice, it takes time to become a drunkard and a glutton. Um, and there's, you know, there's no record of this ever happening, but it, this is pretty, uh, I mean, being stoned, right? to his death. It's a pretty severe punishment. I mean, the death sentence, right, for being rebellious. Um, and again, like I said, there's no record of this happening. Um, but if you'll allow just a little bit of a rabbit trail here, this isn't the main point tonight, but the next section uh, just intrigued me as I was reading this. Um, and you'll recognize these verses, I'm sure. But So let's just carry on in verse 22. And it says, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by punishable by death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. Remember that Jesus was hung on a tree, right? I mean, essentially the cross is, is wood. It's being hung on a tree. It's described that way. Um, and this is part of the reason that Israel couldn't receive him as the Messiah, because they, they couldn't conceive of the Messiah being accursed of God, of him being hung on a tree. Um, the good news for us in this is that by taking our sin, Jesus literally came under the curse of God. Uh, he actually became our sin, right? Our sin was actually put on him as if he committed it. Um, as many of you have heard heard this before, but it's not like he and, and God the Father were saying, hey, let's act like you did this and you take people's punishment. It's like, no, if you've, if you've surrendered to Jesus, if you're trusting him, then your sin is actually imputed to him and his righteousness, which means it's, it's put on him, right? And his righteousness, his goodness is given to you. That's the most glorious thing that's ever happened in, the, in, in earth, on earth, in time, in history, right? I mean, it's incredible. Um, Jot down a passage to read that talks about this. It's Romans 5, the whole chapter. It's 18 verses, I think, so it's, it's not that long. But um, it talks about this, how one man taking on sin and his righteousness being given to us. Even while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us, it says. Um, just an incredible thing. No charge for that side note, but I just I found it interesting that, that those verses followed right after this about the rebellious son. Um. Verse 6, back to Isaiah. Verse 6 says, An oracle on the beasts of the Negev, or the Negev, through a land of trouble and anguish, from where comes the lioness and the lion, the adder and the flying fiery serpent. It's an interesting term, flying fiery serpent, maybe talking about dragons. Uh, they carry their riches on the backs of their donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels. To a people that cannot profit them. Egypt, Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab, who sits still. Well, what is this oracle of the beast, about the beasts of Negev? Well, God's essentially calling out the people of Israel. Um, they think they've made the secret plan and they've taken the secret route. The easy route was to go down the Mediterranean. I mean, there was, a, there was like a highway. It was like I-5 ran right up and down the Mediterranean Sea there, right? That's the easy route. But they didn't want to be seen. So they go through the heart of the Negev, which is a desolate wilderness, not, the, not like the rogue wilderness where there's lots of trees, but just a barren desert. Um, still plenty of hills and, and, uh, and obviously terrible dangerous, not terrible, but dangerous elements of nature, right? Including these animals, not just the train they're going to go through, but also um, lions and lionesses. Um, 
adders, snakes, poisonous snakes, right? And whatever this flying fiery serpent is, there's not any real good indication that we should think of this as some mythological creature. Apparently, in the Negev, some kind of flying fiery serpent existed. Um, what that was exactly, I don't know. Sounds like a dragon, actually. What we think of as dragons, the legends of dragons, right? Um, anyway, moving on. They carry their riches on the backs of their... Oh, sorry, I read that. Um, so God's calling them out. He's revealing the secret route, and he's also poking fun at them. Uh, he's, the idea here is that, listen, you're actually facing more danger through the route that you're taking, going down to this um, Rahab, Rahab of, of uh, Egypt, that, this Rahab that sits still. You're facing more danger going down there and taking the route and dragging all these riches and goods with you than what Assyria is going to face from the Egyptian army. Does that make sense? There's a contrast happening here. He said, you're in more danger than Assyria is just because of the route you're taking. Um, and he talks about this, the Rahab who's, that sits still, the Rahab, the do-nothing, Rahab, the incapable, Rahab, the stuffed crocodile. Um, there's pretty good indications. Uh, well, we all like mascots, right? Our, our favorite sports team has some kind of a mascot. Our schools ten, tend to have mascots. Nations also like to have mascots, and usually they pick mascots for themselves that are ferocious, and, you know, like lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. Um, ferocious things. And they, nations like to pick their own mascots. Actually, God is here giving Egypt. He's giving their mascot to them. Um, and the idea here is that Rahab is actually, uh, there's quite a few different meanings for it, but it's fierceness, it's pride, it's arrogance. There's also some indications that it alludes to um, the creatures in the Nile, whether it's uh, hippopotamuses or various animals that live in the Nile River, and in particular, crocodiles, the Nile, the crocodile of the Nile, which is a pretty ferocious creature, right? I mean, it's not, you don't, you don't want to mess with crocs or, or alligators. Um, they're actually quite fast, if you're, especially in water. But he says they're, it's a do-nothing. It just sits there. Well, what can you think of that looks like a critter but just sits there and does nothing? Say it louder. Say it louder. An idol? Okay, yeah, that's true. I like that. Uh, Charles, you said something? I said idol. Idol, okay, all right. That's really a great answer. I hadn't thought of that. Um, what else? May, uh, any duck hunters in here? No? Maybe. Decoy, thank you, yeah. Decoys. It's like there's this alligator decoy. He's not very ferocious. It's like something that you're afraid of until you actually get close to it and you discover that it's actually, it just sits there. It doesn't do anything. We have a decoy in our backyard. It uh, stands about yay tall. It's a blue heron. And the reason we have that is we have a koi pond. Um, and I don't know if you know this, some, some good trivia information here for you tonight. Uh, blue herons and those, those kinds of birds, like egrets, are also this way. But blue herons in particular, they're quite territorial. So if there's a blue heron in a pond or at a pond or a section of the river, another blue heron usually won't come in and land unless they want to fight. Yeah, guess what happens to my blue heron when one decides it actually wants to come in and land? He just sits there and does nothing, and the blue heron comes over and knocks him over sometimes and fishes in my pond. So my koi are big enough that they're not in a lot of danger most of the time. But, um, but my decoy, when the, when, the one, when the blue heron, when the other birds are flying over, he looks scary to them, right? I mean, especially I put him up on a rock once in a while, so he looks bigger. They leave him alone most of the time. But we have had a couple times when they've come in and they get close enough that they realize this is Rahab the do-nothing. Rahab the decoy. So this is what God's talking about. Um, listen to these ongoing indictments, uh, verse 8. And he says, Write it down, Isaiah. Now go, write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. For they are rebellious children. Listen to this. Isn't this the epitaph you want to leave? The, uh, the thing you want written about you throughout eternity? For they are rebellious people. They're lying children. 
children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say, they say, to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Verse 12, therefore, thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. There's a little bit of irony going on here. He's using the exact same words. They talked about the Holy One of Israel, and and it's kind of like, well, in your face, because this is what the Holy One of Israel says. Because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perversion and rely or perverseness and rely on them, therefore, this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. And its breaking is is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to make fire from the hearth or to dip up water out of the cisterns. Now, there are two two kinds of prophecy that happens in the Old Old Testament, um, written and spoken. Now, spoken prophecy only benefited those who heard it. Uh, Thankfully, we have the benefit of much of it being written down, as in this case, um, and God directly told Isaiah to write it down. And uh, written prophecy benefits for as long as it lasts, right? Which in this case is 2,700 years so far since this prophecy was written, and we've received it, um, and it continues on into the future. Again, isn't that a great legacy to have written about you? Lying children, um, lying little brats, the words in verse 10 remind me, and they probably did you as well when we read them. It says, you know, do not, saying to the seers, do not see and do not prophesy to us what is right. Um, the warning or the admonishment in 2 Timothy 4.3, where it says that a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, uh, They'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They'll, they'll accumulate people who will tell them what they want to hear. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This isn't any new phenomenon. I mean, it's certainly happening in our lifetime, I think, and it's happening more and more as, as time passes. Um, but it happened then, too. It's exactly what verse 10 is talking about. Um, same kind of, same principle. Uh, what's happening? What's happening there? What's happening in these verses? Well, they're resisting truth, right? They're resisting God's word. They're, it's like, no, 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 I'm not going to listen. Don't tell us these things that are true. What are they doing? Um, what are they doing to their heart? They're, they're hardening it, right? They're hardening their heart. A caution, just like Pharaoh, when he hardened his heart, and then he hardened his heart, and then he hardened his heart, and then the next step, God hardened his heart. God will give you exactly what you want. Everybody who's going to spend eternity, whether it's in heaven or hell, they're going to get exactly what they wanted. They're going to get exactly what they chose through their choices. Um, now, there's a lot of things that go into choosing and predestination and all these things. Not gonna, we're not talking about that right now. But people are going to, going to get exactly what they have chosen. Um, and in this case, it's separation from God, uh, a terrible thing. Keep in mind, and, and you've probably heard this before, both from me, from Pastor Rick, from, probably from Pastor Travis, uh, God never hardens a soft heart, right? He will sometimes soften a hard heart. He probably did that for each one of us, right? We probably had a hard heart at some point. I mean, that, that would be our stance on how it happens. We had a hard heart. God softened it. He never takes that soft heart and then hardens it. Um, but he will harden a hard heart because of the principle I just shared. He, he let, he, because of, we're responsible moral agents, right? And, and we have to live with the choices that we make. Um, so if we harden our heart and continue to harden our heart, he'll join into that hardening. And that's a terrible place to be. Uh, verses 13 and 14 talk about this downfall that's it's coming swiftly and it's coming decisively. Um, verse 14, where it's talking about the, the, these ve- clays of ves- the, the clay pots that are shards now, right? They've been broken. So it's talking about things being destroyed. They didn't have Bic lighters, so they would use a shard, pottery, 
pottery shards, pieces of broken pottery, to go and take a, a hot coal off of, talks about the hearth here, but wherever, if there was a fire that they'd had wherever and they needed to make another fire over here, well, they'd, they'd talk, take a, a little piece of pottery and go grab a hot coal and move it to where they needed their other fire. He's saying the devastation is going to be so severe and so complete that there won't be a piece of pottery big enough to do that. You won't be able to go to the hearth and grab, grab an ember, grab a coal. Um, there won't be a piece of pottery big enough to go and dip water out of the cistern. Um, so in other words, the, the devastation, the, uh, this downfall, this collapse that it talks about in, in verse 13, it's, it's coming suddenly and it's going to be complete because uh, it's going to be devastating from the descriptions there in, in verse 14. Verse 15, for thus said the Lord Almighty, and that should be rendered Adonai Yahweh, the Lord Almighty, the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel. In returning, idea of repentance here in this returning, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling, and you said, no, we will flee upon horses. Therefore, you shall flee away, and we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. In other words, no matter how fast you think you are, you're not going to be able to get away. You can't outrun God. Verse 17, a thousand shall flee at the threat of one, and at the threat of five you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Uh, in other words, a small remnant will be left by the time this is all said and done. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. He graciously awaits. Uh, if we go back through a couple of those verses, the um, verse 18 in particular, it's talking about all this devastation, right, in the, in the previous verses that's going to come upon them. Um, and then in verse 15, he says, but listen, return, in other words, repent and rest and you'll be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Don't get all roiled up about what's going on. Uh, trust in God and in, in quietness, trust him. And that's going to be your strength. Uh, and by strength, he's talking about faith. In verse 18, it says, therefore, the Lord, he's waiting to be gracious to you, but because he's a God of justice, the justice and the judgment has to come first. And then he will indeed pour out upon them, uh, pouring out mercy. Uh, the next verses from 19 to 26 are uh, promises of the coming reign of Christ Jesus. Verse 19, for a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem, you shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. Contrast this to the dullness of their hearing. They were resisting God, right? And in this time frame, he's talking about, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hear your cry and instantly I'm going to answer him. And immediately I'm going to respond to your cry. Uh, and though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This way, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right and when you turn to the left, then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, Be gone. And he will give rain for the seed with which you sow the ground and bread, the produce of the ground, which, he, which will be rich and plenteous. In that day, your livestock will graze in large pastures and the oxen and the donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder, which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. There can't be much better news for an agrarian society than these kinds of things. It's just talking about the plentiful um, abundance for their animals to graze in and... Uh, goes on talking about plentiful water in verse 25 here. And on the loft, and on every lofty mountain and every high hill, there will be brooks running with water. 
in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days. In the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. Um, walking back through some of these, think weeping no more. When, when will there be no more tears? Talks about that in Revelation, right? Um, speaking of probably the millennial reign. Interesting notes or interesting words here in verse 20. It says, uh, the Lord gave you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, probably talking about a time span when they, when they had no word from the Lord, maybe the intertestamental period when there were no prophets, no, nobody was speaking for God directly to the people. Um, but he, he says, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. He's actually going to walk among you. It's talking about God actually being in their presence, walking with them, giving them counsel. That's never, well, I was going to say that's never happened. It actually happened in Genesis 18. God walked around with Abraham. Um, before that, in, in the garden, right, God walked with Adam and Eve. Um, so this has got to be pointing to some future time frame when your teacher, our teacher, our prophet, Jesus, will actually be walking with us. Um, We'll be able to see him, and God the Father will be able to see him in whatever capacity we're able to see him as spirit. And we'll hear his words. We'll no longer be wandering around like lost people without a shepherd. We'll actually hear him telling us, uh, giving us direction, saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or to the left, you know, he's, he's giving encouragement. And, and, um, and all of their idols will be um, cast away. That's actually a pretty graphic words there in Hebrew. It's like, it, you guys know what scubula is, right? It's excrement. It's like it's going to be scattered to the wind. Um, there's also this picture, potentially this picture is talking about carved idols that are overlaid with silver and gold. Think of whitewashed tombs uh, or whitewashed uh, vessels that, that Jesus talks about the Pharisees and the Sadducees being. The, they're all worried about the outside, right? But inside is this nothingness. The same thing with these idols. You've got this this pretty outside, but inside is just it's just wood. It's just something that your hands made. Um, well, that's all going to be scattered. It'll be gone. And again, the the next verses there, twenty three through twenty six. Um, it's 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 talking about the restoration of nature, about things happening the way that they should, about uh, crops producing abundantly, and the running water. Um, and then there's this great day of the slaughter. What is that talking about? I'm actually not sure. <laughs> Probably Armageddon, some great slaughter. And, and the towers, when the towers are going to fall, it kind of is a, an odd thing that's interjected here. And, and uh, the commentaries I was reading at least don't speak directly to it. They don't really have much of an idea what it's talking about. Um, so I won't try to say anything about it either. Um, the last bit, chapter 20 or verse 26 has got to be making some kind of allusions to creation. Um, the, word, the number seven is no accident there. Uh, the literal seven-day creation of Genesis and the sun and the moon, the creation of them, and, and, uh, and then the seventh day of rest. Well, in this time frame, it's talking about the, 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 the brightness of the sun being sevenfold brighter than it's ever been before. And the moon is brighter. And um, so just some incredible things happening within nature that we've not experienced and nobody else has it. It's speaking of something in the future. Uh, and binding up these wounds that's, that he's inflicted, fixing, bringing reconciliation uh, to this curse that came upon mankind in Genesis 3 or came upon the creation in Genesis 3. Uh, all of that being healed, uh, those are the wounds that were inflicted by his, by his blow. And now coming up in verses 27 and on, it's the conquering hero is coming. And the language here is, is very, um, describes very much human emotion um, put on God. Anthropomorphic is the technical term for that. Uh, and some of it maybe shocks us a little bit because he comes with a vengeance, but it really shouldn't. He's a just God who's going to dole out judgment and also mercy, Right? 
Verse 27, it says, Behold, the name of the Lord that comes from afar, burning with his anger, and in thick rising smoke, his lips are full of fury, and his tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overwhelming stream that reaches up to the neck. Using the same kind of language that he used about Assyria, Assyria being this flood coming in, it's going to come up right up to your neck, he told Judah. Same picture here. His breath is going to come like an overflowing stream that's going to reach right up to your neck, Assyria, um, and the nations, and it's going to sift the nations with a sieve of destruction and to uh, place on the jaws of the peoples a bridle that leads astray. You shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept and gladness of heart as when one sets out to the sound of the flute to go to the mountains of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. And the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger and a flame of devouring fire with a cloudburst and storm and hailstones. The Assyrians will be terror-stricken at the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod. And every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on them will be to the sound of tambourines and lyres. Battling with brandished arm, he will fight with them. For a burning place has been long prepared indeed. For the king, it has been made ready. King of Assyria, that is. Its pyre made deep and wide with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. It's a picture of just destruction and fury and anger coming upon this nation that the Lord raised up to use to bring discipline on his people. And then he's taking the rod of Assyria and beating them. The picture here is that he's beating them to death with their own rod, beating them to death with the, with the same kind of destruction and fury that they brought against his people. And he used Babylon to do that, essentially. Um, the part, it, it may strike you odd that in verse 32, where it says, every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on them. So as he's beating Assyria, there's music and rejoicing among his people. What do you feel when, when, when the villain of the movie is getting destroyed and pummeled, right? It's like, yeah, yeah, get him. It's the same kind of idea here. They deserve the punishment that's coming. Um, the Lord does this. I mean, he raised up Assyria, uses Babylon to conquer them. Um, Babylon is raised up, and then he used the, uses the Medes and the Persians to bring um, destruction and, and discipline or judgment upon Babylon. Um, he did the same thing to Rome. He did the same thing to his own people through with the Romans, right? A.D. 70, when, when uh, Jerusalem was flattened, essentially. He does this. There's always a bigger fish coming along to, to chew up the little bit lesser fish, right? And then ultimately, God is the, the biggest fish in the pond, and he's coming, bringing judgment and destruction, and ultimately bringing about justice and peace, um, setting everything right. Um, Verse 33 here, it talks, it's talking about this burning place that's been prepared. Most commentators think that he's talking about Gehenna or Tophet in the Hinnom Valley, which is south of Jerusalem. Um, this is the place where well, even Israel or Judah, the southern tribes, they sacrificed their children to Moloch. Um, and he's saying that this place, this place of fire, this place where uh, the burning of children has happened, it's been being prepared for a long time to be the destruction of the king of Assyria, to be the destruction of um, this idolatry and this injustice that's been happening. Uh, so likewise, the king of Assyria, his, his pyre, his his death pyre has been being prepared, and it's deep and it's wide and it's abundant. Um, and the Lord himself kindles it. Moving into chapter 31, this is a, essentially a summary of chapter 30. Like any good preacher, Isaiah reiterates his main points here. He, he talks about um, Egypt's help is worthless. 
And not only is it worthless, but it's unnecessary because the second point is that the Lord himself is actually going to fight for Zion and overthrow the Assyrians. So we'll read through these verses. It's only eight verses long, right? Nine verses. Ah, so chapter 31, woe to those, and you'll, you'll see that it, it sounds just like a shortened version of chapter 30. It's essentially what it is, summary. It says, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, those who trust in chariots because there are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but, do not look to the, but they don't look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. There is wisdom in bringing disaster. That's kind of an odd phrase, but it's the same idea that we talked about. And, you know, when we see a movie and we see the villain just get, get destroyed, it, it's, there's wisdom in that disaster, in that destruction. Verse 3, the Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirits. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. In other words, you're putting your trust in Egypt. The Lord is going to reach, stretch out his hand, and they're going to stumble, along with anybody who's relying on them, and they'll perish together. For thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey. These verses are actually talking about how God is protecting his, his people. As a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he's not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the, so the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill like birds hovering. So the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. And then he hits his main point here in verse 6. Turn to him whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. In other words, repent and turn back to God. For in that day, everyone shall cast his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. Uh, shall cast away his idols. Verse 6 here is calling for repentance, turning. That's this idea of repentance. Turn back to him, not just turn away from Egypt, not just turn away from the decoy that you've been trusting, but actually turn back to God. Um, <clears throat> idolatry is, is, I mean, essentially it's the ultimate sin that is not just that Israel gets called out on, but that all of us get called out on, um, which idolatry is putting anything or anyone in place of God in our lives. And Isaiah here, he's calling for repentance. Um, <clears throat> you'll notice as we continue on in verses 8 and 9 that the second point regarding God's deliverance uh, is it gets repeated again. We saw it in verses 1 through 3. It gets repeated in 8 through 9. Um, and it's interesting because, now no, follow me, this is a little, it's not that tricky, but it's a, a little tricky to follow. Um, you get this picture of judgment and then deliverance before repentance happens, right? So the, the first five verses talk about judgment, and then in verses 4 and 5, it's deliverance or God's mercy. And then in verse 6, it's calling for this repentance. And then right after that, it's going to repeat um, these verses about judgment. And the idea or the thought here is that it's, it's like it's underlining the fact that while grace is promised before repentance and is therefore also um, a reason to repent, because you've got this to look forward to, so it's a reason to repent. Um, but that same grace is only fully realized or fully experienced after repentance takes place. So here's the thought, right? It's just like what happens in our lives. There's judgment. God's warning us about judgment. And he says, but listen, this grace, this mercy is available to you. And then we repent, right? And then we fully realize his grace and his mercy. I mean, we enter into it. Um, 
So the offer is just like what Romans 5 that I mentioned earlier talks about. It's like while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, giving us this great hope that we can put our faith and trust in. Is that, is that making sense? It's a little convoluted maybe and may not be explaining it all that well. But um, So verses 8 and 9. And the Assyrians shall fall by a sword, not of man. And a sword, not of man, shall devour him. And he shall flee from the sword. And his young men will be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror. And his officers desert the stranded in panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. So it's talking again about the Lord delivers them. Um, the Lord delivering them in verse 9, right after this judgment in verse 8, a judgment against Assyria. So we're going to stop there, in the Scripture at least. Uh, but let's talk about some takeaways, uh, some principles or some takeaways that we can draw out of, out of these chapters. Uh, the first thing you should take note of is that direction requires instruction. Um, Direction requires instruction. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, <clears throat> it requires us spending time in God's Word. That's where the instruction comes from that actually provides direction for our lives. Um, and not just when we're in crisis, right? Although that's a perfectly fine time to be in God's Word. I shared last week just a small snapshot of, of my personal conversion, my own testimony, um, being in a hard place and calling my dad and him telling me, listen, you know, you, you, gotta, you know what you need to do. You need to turn to the Lord, get back to church and turn back to the Lord. This wasn't the first time I'd been in crisis, right? I mean, this just was the culmination when I finally surrendered. But um, I had been here at Trail Christian Fellowship many other times before that in, in the old sanctuary next door. When I was in crisis mode, I would come to church. I knew, at least knew where to go. Uh, and I can recall vividly one time and, and, and broken things in my life and ending up, up, up in the prayer room. And I'd actually, uh, Scott Walker, who's one of our sound guys, he was an elder back in those days, um, happened to be the person that was in the prayer room that evening or that morning, I guess it was a Sunday. Um, and I went in, and I'm just a blubbering idiot and crying all over myself and seeking, you know, God's forgiveness. And, and then, you know, Scott's comforting and nice and saying good things to me. And yeah, this is what you need to do and that. And, and then I went right back to my own ways and trusting in myself and trusting in the things about life, right, that I'd, that I'd done every other time I'd been in a crisis and turned to the Lord, like foxhole conversion, right, um, until it finally stuck for me, right? So... Um, but we need to not be turning to God's Word just in times of crisis, right? Although crisis does bring about great change, doesn't it? I mean, it did in my life. Um, it does in our world as well. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but before World War I, a lot of people, Christians included, thought that a utopian society was, was doable, that we could usher in this great moral change and, and create a great culture and a great society in our world. And in fact, um, uh, they thought that they, the Christians in particular, thought that we needed to usher this in, that through our behavior and through our goodness, we would uh, usher in the second coming of the Lord. And then what happened? Well, World War I, right? Uh, and then shortly after World War I, not quite World War II yet, but shortly after World War I, anybody have, know what happened right after that or shortly after? The Great Yeah, the Great Depression. And it didn't just affect America, but the whole industrialized world suffered during the Great Depression. Um, and then right after that, World War II. And by the time World War II got over, it's like people are thinking, yeah, this is hopeless. We're not going to usher anything in. And they were right. But the good thing that came out of that, the thing that they realized, especially people in Europe and America, is that the world was ripe for harvest and that we needed to be going out and taking the gospel message out to people. And the greatest missional movement that had happened up in history up to that point happened right shortly after World War II. Um, we, America, that is, sent out missionaries to many different places, 
um, mistake-free and mistake-prone, right? I mean, good things happened and bad things in, in that. Same thing happened out of Europe. I mean, the gospel message went out, and there, was, there really was a, a, a boom, uh, a worldwide revival of sorts, or at least an increase in people involved in the kingdom. Um, so good things came out of those terrible, terrible crises, um, it also came about not just because they saw how depraved the world was, but because they, they got deeper into the world and they realized, listen, our job isn't to create utopia through our good moral behavior. Our job is actually to take the gospel message out. And that's what they did. Um, so uh, an, another time or another example of this, people in, in counseling will often ask, or not even in counseling, just in general, people ask, how do I discern God's will for my life? Well, the first place that you do that is to get to be in his word, to be in his word regularly, right? Not just one time taking snapshots of God's word, um, but on a regular basis so that it becomes part of your being, so it becomes part of your heart, part of your mind. Uh, that's how you discern God's will because it's no big secret what God's will is for your life. His will for your life is your sanctification, for you to be made holy. Secondarily, it's for you to take that holiness or that those good things that God's done in your life and take it out and share it with other people. Um, glorifying God through both of those things. Um, the second thing to take note of is quietness and rest facilitate strength. And we see that back in verse 15. Or at least that's where it's drawn from, verse 15 of, uh, of chapter 30. And by strength, I mean faith, your resolve to trust God. How often do you find yourself listening to um, newscasts? Now, this might be Fox for some of you, or it might be CNN for some of you. I'm making no judgment. News, right? The news of the day. Whether it's Fox, CNN, CBS, ABC, I don't, I, I'm not particularly, I don't particularly care which one it is because they all do this, right? Or maybe talk radio, maybe even Christian teaching that you're listening to on a regular basis. Are you listening to things that cause you to get worked up and anxious and may, perhaps even mad about the things that are happening in the world? <laughs> you don't know? I do. I do this sometimes. I have to be careful what I'm taking in, right, because of what it does to my attitude um, or what it, makes me think, what it makes me think I need to get involved in, which, which latest movement I need to, you know, support or get behind. Um, well, how do you react when you hear something being taught that, that you find disagreeable? Uh, whether it's because it's exposing your own sin or because it's things that are upsetting you about what's happening because of other people's sin, right? <laughs> Both directions work. Well, verse 15 says that your quietness and rest will be your strength. Turn back to God. And, uh, well, and it reminds me of Psalm 46.10 where it says, Be still. It's like, hush, quiet, quiet, little one. <laughs> Be still and know that I am God. A lot of people stop right there. It's a great verse, right? But it goes on to say, because my name will be exalted among the nations. My name will be exalted in all the earth. So it's not just be still and know that he's God. Be still and know that he's God, and he's going to make his redemptive purposes happen among the nations and in all of the earth. Um. I mentioned earlier that crises often produces remarkable outcomes. Do you know which nation has the fastest growing church in the world? That's not a rhetorical question. Yeah, Eric? China. Yes. This is a nation, a country, where it's Ill illegal to proselytize, illegal to share your faith, right? Illegal to try to draw other people into uh, the gospel. It's illegal to gather, except in government-sanctioned gatherings, we would be, this gathering would be illegal because we're not a government-sanctioned church uh, or a government-sanctioned gathering. They're being tracked with their smartphones. Not only are they being tracked with their smartphones through apps that are on their smartphones, that those are apps that they're required to have on their smartphones, and it's actually illegal for them to not have their smartphones with them. So they're being tracked. They can see when gatherings are happening. In China, we're talking about not not America. That would never happen in America. Being tracked in China. 
you laugh. Yeah. Um, it's not happening yet in America that we know about, right? Um, so, so in a country where all these things are illegal, and, and the low, it is the fastest growing church in the world, um, it, the low estimates say that there's probably 18 million Christians in China. Now, think about what happened. I mean, the government went like squash on a grape, right? And as the, as the grape got squashed, what happened? All the grape juice got spread out. So as, as the Christian movement got squashed, they thought, what they actually did was spread the gospel all over their country. And low estimates say that 18 million, that's 18 million of them that are willing to tell a surveyist from Pew Research or wherever, that, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm an evangelical Christian. About 90% of them are evangelical. Well, how many more do you think there actually are there? I mean, it's one thing to tell a survey that you're a Christian, it's another thing to put your life on the line and share the gospel message. Now, the reason I make that distinction is because I think there's a lot more of them that are willing to put their life on the line and say, yes, I'm a Christian, I'm following Jesus, and you should too, than there are that are willing to, to put a target on themselves by, by telling some surveyor that they're Christians, right? Does that make sense? They're willing to die for the gospel, but they're not necessarily willing to tell some surveyist that they're a Christian. And that makes perfectly good sense to me. They're not denying Christ. They're not doing anything wrong or sinful in that distinction. They're just simply saying, listen, it's not that important for me to tell you that I'm a Christian, but it is that important for me to be sharing the gospel. That puts enough of a target on them, and many of them suffer because of that. Um, there's another country that's very similar, uh, and that's, that would be India. Uh, it's amazing how many... This is a country with 1.4 billion people. Their population, they just recently passed up China as the most populous planet on, or country on Earth. And um, it's reported, and I think there are more there than this because of the number of Christians in the South, but it's reported that 2.3% of their population is Christian. Do you know how many of that is out of 1.4 million? It's 32 million. I'll do the math for you. 32 million Christians in India. Um, that's about half as many as there are that claim to be Christian, evangelical Christians in America. We have somewhere 70, 80 million that would claim to be um, Protestant evangelical Christians. So huge number of Christians in these places that, where it's illegal. Simple question. Is freedom, our freedoms in our country, is our freedom reliant on the gospel or is the gospel reliant on freedom? Well, which, we often, you know, you hear the question, which came first, the chicken or the egg, right? Well, which came first, our freedom or the gospel? Yeah. The, go the gospel has actually made it possible for us to have our freedom, right? Not the other way around. And the reason I make this distinction is because it's so easy for us to get distracted by decoys, things that want to draw our attention away, like our freedoms as being the most important thing happening in the world, right? That's actually not true. The gospel can thrive in any environment. Now, has it thrived better among us as free people? Mm, maybe. I think you could make an argument that it hasn't, that persecution like China has actually made it more effective because there's a large, this larger contrast, right? Um, and people there are actually willing to die for their beliefs. I'm not positive what I would do today in this moment if somebody held a gun to my head and said, are you a Christian? I hope I would have the intestinal fortitude to say, yeah, I'm following Christ and leave the results up to the Lord. But that's, a, that's, a, that's kind of like the position that Hezekiah was in, right? It's, it's challenging. It's difficult. Um, so remember that the next time that someone's stirring up your emotions, uh, whether it's about our constitution our freedoms, both good things, okay? Do not take this the wrong way. These are good things in our world. But when you're getting stirred up because of them, when you're getting angry about such things, um, maybe you need to think through those a little bit more. Uh, people being converted into God's kingdom through the sharing of the gospel, that's the most important thing that's happening in our world at any given moment. So vote, right? Do get involved, when opportunity presents itself, be involved in our um, political system as much as you can, but don't let that be the, control, the thing that controls your life. God's actually in control, and nothing is going to thwart his plans. 
The last thing, and I'll speed up here a little bit. I've, I've kept you longer than I intended already, but uh, the last thing is that, uh, or second to last thing, actually, judgment and grace facilitate re- repentance. And we saw this in chapter 30, where we see this in chapter 31, and I, I mentioned it a little bit in this idea uh, about the, the warning coming, that impending judgment followed by a promise of deliverance, which is followed by the repentance. The thought here is that because we can see judgment and we can also see grace that's being offered, both of those are what draw people to the gospel. And the reason that's important is because we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be apologetic. We shouldn't shy away from the idea that, hey, real judgment is coming. Hell is real. Uh, and if you don't choose Jesus, hell is where you're going to end up, right? That choice that I talked about early on where people end up in the place that they choose, whether that's in God's presence or separated from God. Um, that is based on choices. So repent, come to the Lord, uh, come to that peaceful trust in the God that saves. Last thought on what we might draw. Um, and it's just personal reflection, personal introspection. What are the decoys in your life? What are you trusting for your identity? What are you trusting for provision, protection, deliverance? What are the, the, the decoys, the distractions in your life that you're trusting? Anything other than God. And we've stated this before. Some of those decoys actually can be good. They can be healthy things like job, family, community. Um, but none of these can rescue you like God promised that he can. So trust in the living God. Repent, be still, and find real peace and deliverance. Father, we thank you for uh, your word tonight. Thank you for um, uh, my brothers and sisters that are here, Lord, and uh, I pray for your blessing upon them. We, we pray, Father, all of us together, that you press in upon our hearts and minds the, the realities of um, your goodness and your love. And that, it, Lord, if there are any decoys, as we've talked about here in our lives, would you please help us to remove them? Help us to identify them, Lord, and through your help and through your goodness to be able to remove them out of our lives, that you would be the the only one that we're trusting in. We love you, Lord, and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.